Hello and welcome to The Heat Seat. I'm your host, Sophie Solaria, and this is the place you'll get to meet some of the amazing patrons, experts and ambassadors behind the fantastic campaign that's Menopause Mandate. We're getting insight into these women's female health experiences from menstruation to menopause, and we'll find out how they dealt with the lows, gained their knowledge and found their path to where they are now. But before we head into hearing from the wonderful and very funny Emma Kennedy, I want to talk to you about understanding your own health and menopause so that you aren't left feeling lost. Emma talks about her lack of understanding when it came to her feelings of anxiety in particular, which we now know to be perimenopause, so much so that she ended up in hospital twice. She now wants women to be more aware. And that is why Menopause Mandate has partnered with Let's All Talk Menopause to help people gain some knowledge. Let's All Talk Menopause is a webinar platform. They run regular sessions with leading menopause experts covering all aspects of peri and menopause. And if you'd like the chance to learn more about your symptoms and ask the leading experts your questions, you can subscribe for as little as £5 a month or £50 a year to access regular sessions plus the library of over 60 great talks. And if you quote MM20 at checkout, you'll get 20% off your annual subscription. But now it's time to meet today's guest. Emma Kennedy is an author and screenwriter who has been working in film, radio and television for over 30 years. She's spoken publicly on a number of health topics, including the menopause and also mental health. Her book, Letters from Brenda, an incredibly moving tribute to her late mum, is based around her undiagnosed mental health illness. Let's head over to Emma now. Welcome, Emma. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, hello, hello. Really good to have you. Really grateful for you to be here. You can ask me anything about my vagina. You can ask me anything straight in. (laughs) It turns out my vagina and my womb are now like an ancient Egyptian crypt that have to be broken into uh, by someone like Indiana Jones. And I'm afraid that it turns out that anyone who touches it is cursed. (laughs) Every time I lift a leg... You hear every single time. It's awkward. But yeah, you can ask anything about oh, it. I'm not going to get through it. I'm anyway. not going to be able to do it. <laughs> <laughs> right. You grew up as an only child in the 70s, yes. Emma. How I much of periods and menopause and all that discussed in society and also in the family oh, home God. as well? Not, Not at all. Just not at all. I can remember, I was 11. I was only 11 when my period started. And they started in a music class. And I think the only preparedness I'd had for my period is that my mother, uh, when I started senior school, had given me a sanitary towel that was the size of a brick oh, and had and had loops on the end of it. And she just had just given that to me to have in my school bag for the day when it happened. So I remember uh, sitting through the music class, bleeding, because I was so embarrassed that I I didn't want to say to my teacher, I have to go to the loo. And thank God we had dark navy skirts, because otherwise all the blood would have shown on the back of my skirt. I went to the loo and pulled out this ratty-tatty, uh, sanitary towel because in those days they didn't come nicely wrapped in plastic no it was just out and so it was all ratty tatty because it had been in my bag for the best part of a year and that was my entry into uh, my relationship with periods that is delightful when she gave you that ratty tatty did she tell you why you were to keep it no. did you know what it was for 
I sort of vaguely knew that there was a thing called periods and that we would get periods. And I knew that because we'd had sex education classes at my junior school. Uh, but those were mostly just about sort of sitting and rocking and swaying gently to the theme tune of, of the sexual education programme that was put on for schools. It had a very sexy theme tune, which all got us in the mood. And so we didn't really pay much attention to anything. It was just we were plonked down in front of this sex education programme for schools. And that's how we learnt sex education from watching it on, on the telly. There was never any discussion about anything. I think the closest we got to ever chatting about the biological aspects of it was when I drew a rabbit fetus in a womb and someone called Helen Gregory had a right go at me telling me that had nothing to do with biology and we had a little bit of a to-do and I was told off. That was it. That really was it. But there was no discussion about how periods make you feel. There was no discussion about premenstrual tension. There was no discussion about endometriosis. There was no discussion about any complications that come with periods, absolutely nothing. The main thing that was just rammed into me by my mother was don't get pregnant because according to her, children ruin your life. So that was rammed into me from a, a very early age was do not get married and do not have children. To her child. Yeah, this is what happened when you were when you're brought up in the early 70s after Jermaine Greer has had a seminal book out, Empowering Women, is that basically childbirth and everything to do with it was out the window. That's what I was up against. And you've mentioned now, you've mentioned your mum, and you, we will touch on, on this. The book, firstly, that you wrote, I've actually read a really beautiful article about the book and, of course, about your mum, who mm-hmm. had an undiagnosed mental health condition, mm-hmm. you think, or has that been proven? Yes, it has. So I was pretty convinced that that my mother had an undiagnosed mental illness for all of her life. She was she was a very charismatic person. She was probably the most charismatic person I've, I've ever known in my life. She, she was like a wild horse. And the analogy I always use is if you went into a field and a wild horse came up to you and wanted to spend time with you, it would be feel like the most magical thing that had ever happened to you. But wild horses can very suddenly rear up and smash your brains in. So they are also something to be terrified of. And this was my relationship with my mother in a nutshell, is that there was good Brenda who was the most incredible person you ever wanted to be around. And then there was bad Brenda, who was a terrible, terrible monster. And I think after she died, uh, I think part of my grieving process was trying to come to terms with my relationship with bad Brenda and the feeling that I didn't want to feel as if all the love that I had had for her had been wasted on a bad person. Mm. And that was really important for me. And I began to sort of think differently about my mother in my mid-30s. When I was a child, I was just terrified of her because she was very unpredictable. You didn't know which Brenda was going to walk in the room on any given day or any given moment. And then in my 20s, I resented her because of how I'd felt when I was a child. And then in my 30s, I began to finally understand that she wasn't bad. She was ill. Yeah. And so I I didn't really know what was wrong with her. I wondered if she was bipolar. I wondered if she she didn't really have depression. This This was the thing. 
around her periods, she would she definitely had premenstrual tension and she definitely had postpartum depression. Her mother died two months before I was born, so she was dealing with that at the same time. So there was a lot going on when I was born. But it was the fact that she was paranoid. The paranoia became much worse after she was menopausal. She was really deeply paranoid and she was very controlling. She was given to violence sometimes uh, and she was very cruel. So seven years after she died, I finally felt able to write that book, Letters from Bender. And it's the only book of all the 14 books I've written that I absolutely was compelled to write. So I, ha I had to write it to sort of get this out of my system. And I suppose it was me just trying to work out once and for all what she had suffered with. Mm. And I sort of came to a, a conclusion at the end of it, but we then sent the, the book of the manuscript to a clinical psychiatrist because I'm not a clinical psychiatrist and we needed to check that I hadn't written anything that was irresponsible or just plain wrong. And he did an extraordinary thing. He read all of the book and then he wrote me a letter uh, that was so incredible, I asked if we could include it as the epilogue to the book. So it's in the book. So if you buy the book and you will find out what was wrong with Brenda. But he basically concluded that she was a schizophrenic. Yeah. Oh, wow. And that must have been such an important closure for you. Yeah, massive. Okay, Absolutely imagine. massive. Because there's a big thing of, you know, we didn't imagine that. But also for me, it was really, really important to just be left with nothing but empathy mm -hmm. rather than resentment. Yeah. Um, that was hugely important for me in, in terms of my healing process. And again, it's not something that's just was ever discussed. I mean, talking no. about schizophrenia, even in no. 2023. No. Whenever I go um, and do book festivals with Letters from Brenda, I'm always inundated with people afterwards who have had similar experiences, mm. especially with mothers of that generation. And I also work with a charity uh, called Our Time who work with children who have parents who suffer with a mental illness. And I was with them very recently. But every single time I've done a book festival or spoken to people at the charity, they've all said the same thing, is that your mother would not have had the life that she had lived if she had at any point said, help me, I'm mentally unwell. Yeah. She would have been put away. She yeah. would have been put on lithium. She would have led the life of a half zombie. Mm -hmm. It's a, like a lady that works at, at the charity. She she was. I was showing her photos of my mother that are in my book, and and there of her laughing, and she's full of life, and she's she looks like a vital and incredible energy, a, a force of nature is what she looks like. And she just looked at it and she said, "If your mother had asked for help, she wouldn't have looked like that." And yeah. it's true. It's so fascinating. And you even can pinpoint that time when she went through her own menopause, which is also fascinating. Of course, no HRT was probably even discussed at the time. Well, she, uh, th there's a history of breast cancer in our family. So she was always saying, well, I can't go on HRT because of the breast cancer link. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, I, I absorbed that like a sponge. And also thought I can't take HRT because we have such a huge breast cancer uh, risk in our family. I am now on HRT. Well, let's discuss your menopause. Let's start yes. with when you discovered that actually you were 
perimenopausal? What were your symptoms? Okay, so this is quite funny. It began with the hot flushes and um, I just very quickly decided I was just going to give in to them. And there was one day when I'd been asked to go and meet Robbie Williams and his team. And I was in a very posh restaurant and I was sitting and a hot flush began. And I just picked up this napkin and just stuck it to my forehead and carried on talking because by that point I couldn't give a shit. <laughs> were they you all just, men? No, they, yes, it was all yeah, men. They just they sat there staring at me. But there just comes a point with the hot flushes where you stop giving a shit yeah, about yeah. them, doesn't? Yeah. Isn't, isn't there? So I had that, and I also had the night sweats, and I found the night sweats quite debilitating because yeah. they were really stopping me sleeping, and I suffered with that very, very badly. But after about eighteen months. I sort of came out the other end of both of those things. And then I entered what I like to call my smug phase Uh where I thought, okay, that's it. It's done. And I didn't need HRT. Ha, ha, ha. In your face. I'm I'm out the other end. This is great. Why why are you taking HRT, all you idiots over there? Just put up with being a bit hot for a bit and you'll be fine. So that was me. Okay. (laughs) That was me. Then three years later came the anxiety. Uh, and the heart palpitations, and I have never experienced anything like it. Mm-hmm. I have never been some, somebody who suffers from anxiety. That might astonish you to know that, <laughs> but I have never been someone who had anxiety, and the heart palpitations were so severe that on one occasion I ended up in an acute unit, and another occasion I was carted off in the back of an ambulance. Oh, my goodness. And all the tests were done. Every single imaginable test was done. The ECG, the ultrasound. I was on a heart monitor for two weeks. I had an exercise test. Everything was done. And my cardiologist at the end of it just looked at all the results and just went, well, I can't explain this. There's nothing wrong with your heart. There's nothing wrong with your heart. Nothing. Mm -hmm. And at that point, and I think I had heard someone talking about the fact that heart palpitations might be a symptom of menopause. And so I said to my cardiologist, do you think this could be menopause? And she said, do you know what it might be? Would you like to see a menopause specialist GP? And I said, yes, please, I would. Wow. And so off I was sent to the menopause GP. She explained all the risks because obviously breast cancer in the family all the risks that being on estrogens would pose for me, and I hadn't fully understood this, but being overweight is three times more dangerous if you have breast cancer in your family than being on HRT. Alcohol is twice as dangerous as being on HRT if you've got a familial risk of breast cancer. So actually being on HRT only increased the risk like minuscule amounts. It's yeah, absolutely minuscule. So I was put on HRT. Uh, I'm on the, the lowest dose possible of estrogen. I'm only on 25 grams. And within 48 hours, all my heart palpitations stopped and all my anxiety stopped. 48 hours. And I haven't had a heart palpitation since and I haven't felt anxious since and I feel incredible. Emma, goodness me. So the next thing that then happened, so I'm happy as Larry on on the HRT. The next thing that happened was I had some bleeding 
And of course, you know, all the alarm bells start ringing the minute you have any bleeding when you're postmenopause. But it is, you can get some bleeding for three months on the first three months that you're on HRT. So this was just a case of sort of trying to get things looked at and checked and blah, blah, blah. Cut a long story short. I went in for a routine hysteroscopy and smear because my my gynecologist tried to do a hysteroscopy while I was awake and with no pain relief. How was that for you? Um, I have never experienced pain. It was like being ripped open. Oh, my God. And and I, I posted about this on Twitter and I couldn't believe how many women replied to it going, mm. thank God it's not just me. Mm-hmm. That there are women who are in menopause or postmenopause, and we all know that our vaginas literally are puffing dust <laughs> at this point, just puffing dust, and they close up. Mm-hmm. And especially for gay women like me, I'm not having penetrative sex, Mm-mm. so you know my my vagina is is literally like the tightest thing you can ever imagine. I'll get on to this because I'm actually on vaginal training. My gynecologist now has me sticking things up, up <gasps> my hoo-ha when I'm what? in the bath to try and make my vagina like a windsock oh, so that next oh. time she has to go up it, it makes it a little bit easier for her, okay? So any, so I, I will get to this because there's, there is an element of this that actually makes me furious. Yeah. There's an element of this that makes me furious. So she gives up while I'm I'm lying there trying to have a hysteroscopy with no pain relief. Uh, I mean, I can't even believe we haven't got a numbing spray for the vagina. Can you imagine if if they, they if anything like this had to be done to men? I mean, it's unbelievable. Just. There's just an attitude that women do not have pain receptors in their cervix, mm. and so we are apparently we have to put up with this. It's absolutely shocking. Anyway, she can't do it, so I got to go in and be knocked out for it. Okay, so I go in. I think I'm going to be out for 10 minutes. I wake up three hours later with a nurse's hand on my arm saying, I'm terribly sorry, the surgeon's perforated your womb. You had to have emergency surgery. And I'll tell you why the surgeon perforated my womb is I have a thing called a pinhole cervix. Uh Now, my attitude is if it's got a medical name, I can't be the only person in the world that has one of those things, Uh -uh. okay? There must be thousands of women, hundreds of thousands of women who have a pinhole cervix. What is a pinhole cervix? The hole uh, of the cervix into the womb is very small. So if you haven't had children, which is me, you're probably going to have a pinhole cervix, okay? Mm -hmm. They don't have instruments small enough to get through a pinhole cervix. No one's made them. And so what had to happen was the surgeon had to cut my cervix open in order to get her camera into my womb, seize the polyp, but she hasn't got an instrument that so she can't send in the camera and the instrument at the same time because there isn't one that's invented. And so she had to go in and try and remove the polyp blind. And that's when she perforated my womb. And apparently this is very common. Oh. And it's common because they simply have not made instruments that are small enough to get a camera and a cutting instrument into a womb to remove a polyp, which is a very small, simple operation. You think about all those incredible surgeon programs that they have uh, on telly 
and about how they can operate inside tiny blood vessels uh-huh. with a camera and a cutting implement. You know, you think about the tiny, tiny places that they can send instruments in the body. Can they send an instrument into a womb? No, they bloody can't. It's crazy. So I, I was absolutely infuriated by that. But my gynecologist basically has said to me, if I need to ever do anything else on you, I'm just going to give you a hysterectomy because basically it's easier than just trying to remove a polyp. Oh, my goodness. That's the attitude. It's bonkers, isn't it? Did you complain or...? I couldn't complain because uh, in the in the lead up to the hysteroscopy, as I was being read out all the complications that can occur, I was told that one in 1,000 will have a perforation of the womb. You signed it. And I signed it. Of course. This is terrible. This That story is just, it's made every part of my body like yeah it's in, it's infuriating it's absolutely appalling. it's infuriating and i i have now on on vaginal training oh. uh, for no other reason than to make uh, my gynecological exams a little bit easier and are you doing the uh, training yeah uh-huh i have to stick great big plastic tubes up up my foof when i'm in the bath it's really uncomfortable and it's horrible it's ridiculous it's ridiculous it's like... because simply because they haven't got an an instrument small enough they they don't do small enough speculums for people with me- menopausal yeah. vaginas what do they use if a, a female child has to go in and has to have an examination for whatever reason they they won't use adult speculums on them will they what on no. earth do they use for that they cannot invent a speculum that is small enough for menopausal women who haven't had children. It's not rocket science, is it? And this is just one of a million things that yeah. could be so different, couldn't it, for, yeah. for women, you know? Yeah. There's yeah. so many things that need to be changed. Of course, yeah. Menopause Mandate, the campaign team, is part of why we're doing this. And this is, to be honest, I think the, the speculum thing needs to come into the mandate. Yeah. I think we... 100%. Make medical advances there, on this there, stuff. There, there needs to be three things. There needs to be pain relief offered for smears and hysteroscopies. There needs to be uh, smaller speculums for women who are menopausal or women who have not had children and gay women mm-hmm. who don't have penetrative sex. And there needs to be instruments small enough to get into a womb to remove a polyp without danger of perforating a womb. Absolutely. You want there to be more consideration in medicine when it comes to women, because that's just a terrible, terrible experience. And it ruins your year. Yeah. We want business. Are you back on HRT now? Yes. Delicious. (laughs) Delicious HRT. On a positive note, you love it. I have the spray. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I do every morning and then I take the progesterone pill uh, just before I go to bed and again something I didn't realize for the first couple of months I got away with it because I don't eat after eight o'clock mm-hmm. but I didn't I hadn't fully appreciated that you 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 mustn't eat for two hours before you take your progesterone pill because it can affect the absorption wow does it say it in the notes well, I, I mean, I, I'm very bad. I never sit down and read all those notes because if you read anything, you'd think this is going to kill me. Yeah, so I always avoid reading the, the notes that, that always come with every single packet of medicine. But no, that the last time I went to pick up a, a, a repeat prescription, it was the, the pharmacist who said, don't forget, uh, you mustn't eat for two hours before you take this. And I went, really? 
Pharmacists are brilliant, by the way. Like I had a conversation with one a couple of weeks ago who essentially said a lot of this could be taken care of in the pharmacy. Pharmacists Mm. are nearly doctors. They could be prescribing HRT there. Yeah, they they should. I mean, the whole rigmarole of trying to get your HRT medicine, uh, menopause mandate are all over this. But it's, again, can you imagine if men had to take HRT, you'd be able to buy it in supermarkets. You would not need a prescription for it. It would just be, oh, yes, I think I need some HRT. I'm grown enough to have made that decision for myself. I'll go and get some, thanks. You'd be able to buy it in garages. <laughs> Absolutely, in vending machines. And, you know, I think they, that you can get Viagra very simply like this. Yeah, you can. You don't need a prescription for Viagra you anymore. You can just get it over the counter. Lots of work to do. That's the point. Look, Thank you, Emma. We're going to end this podcast by asking each guest to choose their favourite song from the Menopause Mandate's Hot 100 playlist, which can be found on Spotify. What's your favourite song from the playlist and why have you chosen it? I'm going to pick Wow by Kate Bush because, number one, I absolutely loved that album, Lionheart. That was a, a big album for me when I was about 11 years old and just starting my periods so uh, in fact I think my dad bought me that album to cheer me up of my first period so I don't think I could pick any other song off that list because that's all that it reminds me of I love that he bought you that for starting your periods my dad is a tremendous individual yeah this is for your dad then thank you so much Emma it's been so so good to talk to you I really appreciate your time my pleasure Thank you for listening to today's podcast with the inspiring and hilarious Emma Kennedy. Emma's clearly passionate and has an extremely important message to tell. Let's hope that the people who need to hear her do so that women get an easier ride when it comes to gynaecological procedures in the future. To find out more about Emma and the great campaign work she does with Menopause Mandate, head to menopausemandate.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode today, we would love to hear from you. If you have anything to say about the episode or the podcast as a whole, please let me know on the heat seat at menopausemandate.com. We want to give you the best possible podcast, so let me know what you want to hear. Plus, if you like what we're doing, give us a good review and, of course, share it with your friends and family as well. Because we love community and we believe that this is where the best support can often be, which is why we've also partnered up with Holland and Barrett. You see, H&B are truly dedicated to the health of women and believe that menopause very much matters, which is why we at Menopause Mandate have teamed up with them to offer women a free menopause advice line for support and guidance. This gives you a 15-minute check-in with a qualified nurse who can give you unbiased, evidence-based support. That is what we like. The nurse will check your symptoms with you and help you to prepare for a GP consultation. They'll also give you a guide on how to manage lifestyle changes during this very important life stage, giving you support and help to feel empowered, which in turn, of course, gives you back some control. So if you want support and guidance, please do go and book your free session at Holland and Barrett.com. And that's all for this episode. Thanks again for being here. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>